Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Earlier this week at the Core Club in Midtown Manhattan, we gathered to discuss the AMM Fantasy Collecting Game with Joanna Flom, Senior Vice President at Christie's, and a specialist in the post-war and contemporary art department. Joanna is a past winner of the AMM Fantasy Collecting Game, and I wanted to get her opinion on how the game was played and some strategies. The podcast begins with a brief description of how to play the game. You can find the game at fantasy.artmarketmonitor.com. We hope you'll play along with us. Of what I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to very quickly... Uh, show you the uh, fantasy art collecting game just to give you a sense of how it works. And then Joanna Flom from Christie's, who is a um, past winner (laughs) of the game, uh, is going to talk a little bit about uh, how one plays it, some of the strategies people employ. Then we're just going to talk about uh, the art market a little bit. And, of course, uh, if you have questions, both during the process of the game and during our conversation about the market, please uh, ask them. This is not a terribly formal uh, event. So this is the um, the main page that you come to when you play the game. It's at fantasy.artmarketmonitor.com. You will see a place to register because uh, it's not open uh, without registration. You get an email uh, uh, confirming. So the game is built on uh, a fairly straightforward co- concept. The uh, All of the art is priced at the low estimate. We take most of the lots in either the Impressionist Modern Sales or the Contemporary Sales, and we create a uh, grid of those lots, which you can see here. And you are given a chance to look across the entire market, uh, what's on offer. Each of the um, lots themselves links to the catalog page for the auction house, so you can get more details uh, about the lot's provenance, its exhibition history, some of the notes. And we take the uh, aggregate uh, amount of money of those low estimates, and we create a budget. The budget's about 30% uh, of that aggregate, and the point of that is so that you can choose between either the lots that are high value or the lots that are low value or some combination for the lots that you think will do the best in the actual sales. So we set a budget of $150 for uh, this contemporary art sale. And if you select the Ed Ruscha Hurt Radio number two, it removes $30 million from your budget. And when that work sells, if it sells for a hammer price of $35 million, your collection will be worth $5 million more. If it gets bought in or withdrawn before the sale, it gets scored at zero. And you have the option in playing this game of being able to not spend all of that budget. 
The reason for that is if the market has a bad downturn, you would do better by keeping your money in cash. And when we start the game at, as the auctions begin, you'll see sometimes that there's a group of people that have a large amount of money from their budget that's unspent. We've yet to have a bad uh, series of sales where those people have won the game, but there's still the potential for that. that. And at some point, we're, we've been talking about, you know, it would be nice to, everyone always wants to talk about shorting the art market to create the kind of dynamic pricing in the game that would allow you to do that. We're not there yet, but at the moment, the point of this game is for everyone to be a little more invested in the outcome of the auctions. So there's a leaderboard uh, after the game closes and the auctions start, which allow you to see which of your selections are doing well and which are doing poorly. And it creates an environment, at least Joanne can talk about this a little more, that even people who are you know, seasoned pros in this business gives a different sense of um, uh, engagement with uh, the market and what's going on. So I'm happy to answer questions about how the game works itself, but if there are none, we can sort of move on to actually talking about uh, the game. Maybe last November, like about a year ago. Feels. And, and what close. was the strategy you used in, in winning that game? Did so, you use inside information from knowing all, all the secrets of the auction? Never. Um, I think there's a few that I don't know that I do it right. Um, I think everyone probably has their own strategies. I, there are a few things that I think are, I think about at least when kind of selecting. Um, one of them is thinking about how many of the high value, the top value works you're going to pick out of the, out of the group. Um, as we just discussed, there is a budget, so you only can pick so many. Obviously the, the highest value paintings will, they have the greatest chance for you to win if you win big. Um, and yet at the same time, if they sell on one bid to the guarantee or they don't sell at all, you're taking a very big hit out of your overall budget. So you've got to feel pretty confident selecting the ones at the very top end that will do quite, quite well. Otherwise, you you can diversify your risk a bit more by selecting sort of some of the some of the lower value works in the game, especially if you think they'll also perform quite well. Um, so that's sort of one thing to think about. And the other, I think you sort of touched on that I think about, which is spending all the money or not spending all the money. And um, I think you. The way I do it is I go through the game and pick the things that I know I definitely want to get. And then there's a lot of tweaking because you try to use the money in a smart way and you're short or you're long on, on where you are on the budget. But, um, you know, go through on your sure bets and then you're thinking about, do I want to pick extra things? And there is either the things that you, you're, you think, all right, that's a good one and I'll add it in or... You're just really not sure about the ones that are remaining, and therefore maybe it is better to keep some cash because if they, again, if they are withdrawn or don't sell, you're you're getting a you're hit, get, taking a loss on your overall total as opposed to netting out even. Uh, I do want to point out that um, 
I obviously know the rules of the game better than most people, having written them. And, <laughs> and I play every game. And I find every time I play, I actually violate the basic rule of the game, which is it's not about the work that you like. It's about what is undervalued, there might be more competition for, mm -hmm. and what might sell. And I find myself going through the same way and going, oh, I really yeah. like that. You know, that I love this artist. He deserves be better. Right. It's not what you want to own. It's. Well, it's not even just this sort of sentimental, like yeah. uh, uh, cheering them on, or wouldn't it be nice if this right. got, uh, uh, did well? I, there's also, as often happens in the art market, there are similar pictures uh, mm -hmm. uh, across houses and sometimes at the same uh, uh, house. Uh, I noticed in putting the game together uh, this weekend, there's a fair number of uh, Morris Lewis paintings um, uh, this year, which... I assume is more a coincidence than than sort of driven by a particular sort of color field interest. There, um, I think it's twofold. Um, one thing that I think is interesting about the Morris Lewis paintings that are in in the sales across the across the auction houses, uh, most of them are coming from estates. Um, so in that sense, I you know somewhat coincidental. Um, that being said, I think it is reflective of the first generation of post-war and contemporary collectors who are now passing and their estates are coming up. And, and that was a, it was a trend at the time these works were purchased and I think is now coming up, which I think is part of a bigger, a bigger picture that we will see going forward, which is that as these estates come up, the trends that come up will also, you know, be very clear. I also think, and we've seen sort of with color fields in the last few years, is that the art market is full of trends and full of fashion, um, just as mid-century modern design has kind of come back into fashion. I think we saw a real resurgence of color field painting, Morris Lewis, of course, being one of them, Frank and Baller, Noland, and, and it, it does feel like it's very much in fashion. Sa Sam Gilliam. Sam Gilliam, of course. So so when you're you're confronted with that, say you, you know, it's just your sense that uh, this is Morris Lewis's mo moment in the game. Do you try and uh, weigh the various works against each other? Do you just buy Morris Lewis across the board? <laughs> you know, um, I probably wouldn't buy all of them in that you're putting a lot of eggs in one basket. Um, but I think, look, I think part of it is looking at the pricing and, and seeing, you know, how much how much upside potential do each of these have and, and how are they priced? Are they conservatively priced? Are they priced quite full and, and closer to a retail price? But at the same time, it's it's also taking into account about go to the auction houses, look at the paintings. Is there a condition issue with a painting or, you know, are there are there factors that will play into how in demand this one is when you guys are all presented with picking the works in the game? But if you're a collector and you're presented with which one to bid on, which one are people bidding on? And I think that's the one to bet on. Well, I, I found that the people who play tend to actually, you know, the game was sort of created for people who aren't necessarily going to buy, but the people who play tend to be very actively involved in in, yeah. in, in, in buying. It's a bit of a busman's holiday <laughs> uh, uh, that way. 
Uh, and and I don't know if people are actually then going in and looking at the works along uh, uh, side of it, um, but it, it certainly seems that people are sort of uh, spending a lot of time and thinking through uh, how they make their uh, uh, choices. I, I've noticed um, there are a couple of works, you know, maybe one of the most prominent ones are there's sort of two big Hockney uh, paintings. Uh, one is the uh, uh, beautiful uh, uh, terrace painting that mm -hmm. uh, uh, you have. Um, and I assume that's part of this process where, you know, when a very big number is set, the, instead of there, the next thing being another work to try and compete with that number, usually somewhere down the scale, there's a lot more work sold at very strong numbers, numbers that mm. might not have been achieved before, but now that look under the umbrella of that high pr price. There. Well, and I, I, so, so the Hockneys are sort of mm -hmm. like uh, obviously part of that phenomenon. But I've also noticed that there's a number of uh, Christopher Woolworks on paper, mm -hmm. and I was wondering if that's the similar so, sort of thing. So the Christopher Wools feel a bit to me like when it rains it pours i mean there's a bit more randomness i think in you know there's there's very similar works both at sotheby's and at phillips um but i think it's coincidental and we we see it sort of happen in the auction world every season it's something which is you know you think you have something that has not been up in a very long time and it feels very rare and somehow you know another auction house has a similar work or the same artist or a similar series and and it that I think is a bit more coincidence than than anything else I think um with Hockney it's a different story I think you touched on it exactly which is uh Hockney has had an incredible run at auction specifically in the last year it was a year ago that we were kind of sitting here talking about the pool painting at, at Christie's which went on to set a new record price for any living artist let alone for Hockney and so at the time, a year ago, we were talking about, you know, we had given an estimate in the range of $80 million, and everyone thought, this is insane. The, the record price for Hockney at this point is 25, 24, 25. How did you get to 80? And, and there was a lot of discussion around the estimate and the value, and, and you might remember that, that we sort of added the element, the surprise element, that this was going to be a lot that was sold with no reserve. So it started at actually very low numbers, and there was a ton of bidding, and it went on for quite a long time. Um, but ultimately, it achieved $90 million, and so there was a new price bracket set for, set for Hockney. And, and we followed up at Christie's in March um, with the portrait of Henry Geldzahler, which then went on to make $40 million. And, and at the time, if you had talked about it before the pool painting, $40 million would have been completely insane. But um, I, here... I remember uh, the Tate show yes. at, at, when it was at the uh, Met, yeah. standing in that room of the double portraits yeah. and looking at the pool painting and thinking, you know, rather full of myself, gee, that's probably a $50 million painting these days. <laughs> Which course, seemed aspirational at the time. It, it yeah. seemed a bold prediction, yeah. and yet it was nowhere near what it would sell for. For sure. And then, so to talk about the painting that, that we now have in the auction, this is a painting that wasn't in that retrospective, actually wasn't in any of the any of the shows uh, in, recent, in recent times. It was a painting that we very much knew from all the books and the literature 
but it has been in one collection since the mid-70s and hasn't been shown to the public since. So um, this is a painting that really sort of came out of the woodwork, so to speak, in light of the, the recent successes. And is that something you you uh, guys went uh, in search of, or is it, again, one of these, you know, all the publicities brought the consigner out saying, it, gee, I, I happen to have... It a- was a client that we knew, um, and, and of course knew the collection, um, and was a conversation we had been having for, you know, a number of years, but at the end of the day it became sort of the right moment and and at a certain at a certain point it made more sense for them so uh, going along those lines you have that um uh hurting the word radio uh mm-hmm. painting which uh you know many people have talked about uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh having the the chance and the moment to 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 sell and you guys are now uh, uh selling it but you also have sold a fair amount of uh Ed Ruscha's work mm-hmm. in the last year or so. And I again, if you go through just through the game part of it, there are a number of Rouché works up and down the price mm-hmm. uh, uh, spectrum. Uh, and, and both in market terms and in the terms of the game, how, how does that affect the way you look at things? Do you, do you presume that uh, there will be demand across the board. Do you presume that this is a lot of people thinking now's the time, but maybe that somewhat uh, uh, there's not enough demand to uh, uh, satisfy all of that, and so there'll be pockets or there'll be yeah. different places. I mean, where do you look to uh, as an outsider? What uh, you know, how that market is shaping up? Can can it truly, you know, there be? People who want everything from Rouchers on paper to this uh, extraordinary 1960s painting. Yeah, I, I think it depends. I mean, it's so specific to the artist and the individual markets. As it relates to Rouchers, um, Rouchers is an artist we we really have now believed for um, for a bit of time that um, there is there is sort of demand for the artist and and really more to go in terms of upside for for the works. Um, we we had a whole sale that was dedicated to Rouchet in September. Um, we sold 35 works by Ed Rouchet and, and it just, I say it in that it really goes to show that we really believe that there is enough demand to have an entire sale devoted to one artist. Um, we saw a lot of success with that sale. Um, and, and we put that sale together before we even actually knew about this painting. Um, this painting and, and as it relates to the game is a is a painting, as you mentioned, we sort of everyone knew about this painting, but it was never for sale. Um, and and an early 60s major painting by Ed Rouchet has not been on the market in a in a number of years. Um, Christie's sold Smash, which was is now the world record, uh, for $30 million in 2014. Um, so it's been about five years, and, and the demand has grown, and a number of collectors have said to us that they were looking for major Rouchet and, and, and a major work. Um, so in terms of rarity, it is something that people have been searching and, and haven't been able to have access to, which wink, wink, is what sort of seems to to demand competition at auction and, and ultimate success. But I think, I think as it relates, there is interest across the board from, from collectors at all price points. Um, but, but as it relates to how to play this, I think the rarity is, is present at the very top end of the market. And what about the dynamic of the, um, 
the week itself. It, it, mm. it will will the anticipation towards um, uh, the radio painting help the other works, or is it important that that sell well early? I can't remember the timing, whether you guys yeah. come first uh, uh, or not, to have the kind of um, halo effect over mm. the rest of them. Or it's actually, it it's an interesting strategy as we think about the game. Um, Christie's goes first this time. We, every two seasons, sort of switch off on the schedule. Um, so this season, Christie's is going first. Phillips goes second, Sotheby's will go third. Um, as, as we look at works where there are a number of works by the same artist, or like Morris Lewis, a number of these works, I would think about that the first one to come up has the maximum number of bidders possible. So if there are five guys interested in buying a Morris Lewis, all five will presumably bid on the first one. One guy is going to get it, and he's going to have his Morris Lewis. So by the time the second one comes up, there'll be four people bidding. Needless to say, by the third one that comes up, you have three people bidding. Um, prices are exponentially increased by the number of bidders that you have in the game. So the more bidders you have competing for an individual object, the, gra the greater the price it sort of goes to without saying, but it, it really is an exponential increase. So every time you've got a bidder that falls off, it, it is something to consider. So I would also look at the calendar of the game in, a, in an interesting strategic way. Does the, um, uh, the radio painting does not have a third-party guarantee? Um, it does. It does it have does. a third-party Yes, and that what should have been in the catalog, I think, when we... And and how does that uh, affect the way we should think about the potential of a, a Well, the way we think about it in just the general market versus in the game, I think, is a little bit different. So if it, you, correct me if I'm wrong, if it sells to the guarantee, then you get no credit for the... For no, the no, no. sale we, we, in the game? How does it work is, in the everything game? Everything is done on the hammer price. Right. So if the guarantor pays the hammer pr price, that's how it's scored. The only fair way in the game is for what is publicly uh, seen and re and registered. And that's one of the reasons in the game you see the okay. irrevocable bid yep. and guarantee so that you're aware of um, the existence uh, of that. So, and, and then so the question just becomes how we think that affects bidding dynamics. It may not be a universal yeah effect. i mean i i generally don't think it affects the bidding dynamics i think in some cases where you have an object that is priced at a level that is beyond where comparables have sold in the past it can give confidence to other buyers to say you know this is not a price that we pulled out of the sky but actually it is going to trade at this price if you want to buy it you've got to bid one more at least um so I think in that case, it, it can work that way. Um, in the case where prices are in line with what other works have sold in the past, I don't think it really does affect all that much. Um, so forgive me, that was my, um, that was something I, I actually got some clarity on the rules of the game. I yeah. think I sort of missed that one. But um, Well, look, I, I, I always presume that a third-party guarantee is a um, disincentive to bid. 
It's the assumption that someone's already got there first, someone thinks that's the uh, the price. But we've seen several examples, uh, most notably the uh, Basquiat head from three or four years ago, Mm -hmm. uh, where there was uh, a third-party guarantee, Mm -hmm. and it still went, you know, double what the uh, guarantee was, and it it just takes... Two determined bidders to, to for sure, bring for sure, to. and I think I think that too is an example of it was an estimate that was beyond the record when that came up. It did give confidence to the market to say this is selling, and if you want to get in now or never, it's the moment. So uh, I also noticed there are at least two, maybe three, probably more works that were sold fairly recently. You know, mm-hmm. in like twenty seventeen. Um, that are coming back to to the market. And there's always all sorts of reasons that that Mm -hmm. happens. Sometimes the market's massively improved. Sometimes Mm -hmm. the the buyer, you know, can no longer or needs the the money. One of them is the... um, is the big uh, electric chair, mm-hmm. which has a, uh, a third-party guarantee. Mm-hmm. So it, it will tr- transact, and I believe pretty much at the level it was mm-hmm. sort of uh, two or three years ago. Uh, the other one that comes to mind is there's a large um, stingle, those uh, copper-plated mm-hmm. uh, that you know uh, look gold but are mm-hmm. uh, copper uh, uh, pieces. Uh, and, and I think there's one or, or two more uh, in that case. Uh, in in the case of the uh, the Warhol, mm-hmm. uh, it, it always strikes me that confirming a price, even if it's not uh, an advance, especially in a in a market that's gotten somewhat quiet, the way the the sort of top of the Warhol market has, is a is a positive thing uh, uh, for uh, both. The, the sales you were uh, mm-hmm. in and the sales you're looking towards in the in the future. It'll be interesting to see what, what happens with the Stingle, uh, uh, given mm-hmm. some of the things that's gotten to be a, a quieter market and all. I just wanted to uh, sort of broadly frame a, a question about when you're reselling something in such a short uh, period of t- time, is there a different approach that you guys take in the sales part? And for the game purposes, is that a is that a flag that people should? Uh, uh... Um, I think there's a couple of things there. I think one is also taking into account how much the market for that artist has changed, um, and it, it can change. I mean, the market can change within six months. It can within three months. I mean, it, it can move quite quickly. So, is there some strength or? Some buyers who were not in the market, you know, as new new wealth is acquired and new people get into the market, is there is does it speak to a sector of the market that was not there when this thing came up previously? And I think that's something to to consider. Um, so that's sort of that's sort of one. And I think two, as we were sort of talking about third party guarantees before. You know, is in a case where something is coming up again and it is guaranteed, I think that can give confidence to the market that, again, there is a buyer who's looking now and, you know, at maybe an increased price than it was previously. And again, it's sort of your moment um, if this is something that you're looking at. Well, there's certainly in the the sense of these uh, objects being assets, the the ones that have traded more at uh, consistent prices, even though people often say, well, it, you know, it's not getting uh, 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 more valuable, uh, are establishing that this is something that can be sold for a price and for a, a consistent right. price. Um, 
I want to ask you one last question okay. and then let others uh, ask them. I noticed, I think this is different this time. It may be I'm just noticing it. But normally when I make this game, mm -hmm. you run down the values, you get down into the, the six-figure works. Mm -hmm. um, this time, uh, I ran out of space and I couldn't <laughs> even get to the million-dollar works uh, to put in the game. And I noticed there seemed to be many more two, three million dollar works in the mm -hmm. sales. And that suggests to me that though the top end of the market has come down, you know, the most valuable painting is, is 30, mm -hmm. and we've had plenty of years where there's, you know, 50, 70, 80 mm -hmm. million dollar uh, works. It feels like the middle of the market has become more populous and more mm. valuable. I think it's a couple of factors. Um, one is that in the last few seasons, I think we've seen a lot of success for works that are in that two, three, four, five million dollar range. Um, there are a lot of people out there who are looking to bid in that in that level, and I think success begets success when those works have a lot of competition and they achieve very good prices. More come out of the woodwork. Um, I also, I think there's a second factor, and it's, it's a compounded effect, which is probably why it, it ends up being some quite noticeable, is that there are, this is a market that is looking for opportunities. Um, there's been a lot of focus on African-American artists, on female artists, on artists who are having upcoming retrospectives, where there really are opportunities to invest in what were previously undervalued or, or underrepresented underrepresented works. And I think you're getting a lot of those works now into the two, three, four million dollar range that weren't in that range before. So you have all the artists that were already trading in that level and you've added on this whole other sector of works. We're seeing works from Alma Thomas, from Julie Moretu, from Nara, from Cause. I mean, you, Krasner, I can keep going on. But, Carrie James Marshall. But exactly, exactly. Like many of these artists who were not represented in these sales or not represented in these sales at these levels. Maybe they were in the day sales or they were trading up to, you know, a million dollars. But um, the prices have increased. And so you've got this whole new sector that's added on to the artists that were already trading in that level. Okay. Does anyone want to play the game? <laughs> I hope you guys will uh, 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 play along uh, with us. The game closes on Sunday night, and it's Sunday now, so that uh, people like Joanna don't have an unfair advantage mm. of knowing, you know, what all those conversations are just before the sales uh, are like. Thank you all for coming this morning. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com 